I'd echo the words of Brother Tim in saying that the selection was very timely. That refrain, uh, Be Still My Soul, has echoed uh, through my mind quite a bit lately, mainly because that uh, phrase, Be Still, specifically that word, still, has such a wide variety of meanings. Primarily, it means to let go. And as usual, whenever I'm considering any kind of practical wisdom in the Bible, some phrase that, some, some bit of practical wisdom that my parents gave to me at some point in the past generally comes to mind. And uh, something that I'd always been told is not to nurse and rehearse. And that's what that word or phrase, be still, means. It means to let go of the many variety of things which can continually, over and over, repeatedly, on a daily basis, afflict your mind. Now, something like the situation that we are in today and the various medical concerns that we have, the various health concerns that we're confronted with on a daily basis is something that is brought to our attention over and over and over. And although we don't discard those concerns, and although those concerns are, are needed and they are worthy of our attention, there is a sense... In a, in a spiritual sense, that we must let that go. Because there are some very severe ways in which it can detract our attention from the focus and the ultimate victory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Also, I enjoyed that song, um, O God Beyond All Praising. That rolling melody that we sing to that specific, uh, specific uh, particular words that was composed by Gustav Holst, who was a composer, who was an orchestral composer, and he composed that tune in one of his pieces as an ode to the planets, as an ode to the created beauty that we see all around us. And part of the reason that that tune is so impactful is because beauty, as we observe it around us, is a creation of God. It is a direct creation of God. When we go out and we see all these miraculous things that God created, that is an evidence to the born-again child of God that God is there and He has an active hand in the affairs of men and that He has created the world as we see it. There are some, there are some scientists today, there are some philosophers today that will proffer the idea that beauty is a product of chance. Now, that is not the case because there have been those that have tried to create beauty and art by chance. You see that in some forms of modern paintings where someone will stand on the other side of the room and sling paint at a canvas and hope to observe some kind of beauty come out of that randomized process. What often happens is instead of creating beauty, they simply create a canvas that has been sullied by all these big nasty globs of paint. Sometimes it doesn't work that way, but many times it does because God is a God of order and beauty and art as we observe it does not come out of random chance. There have been those that have tried to compose music by flipping a coin. And what they'll do is they'll set a specific sequence. You know, if it, if it lands on heads, they're going to hit this note. If it lands on heads five times in a row, they'll hit this note. And they'll flip that coin thousands of times until they have written this sequence of notes. And then they try to play it. 
because they believe that if their worldview is to stay consistent, they can create beauty and order out of random chance. And what's happened is those composers have gone before crowds of thousands of people who are eagerly awaiting to hear their compositions, and they have been booed out of that concert hall. Because what they don't realize is that God is the creator of beauty. And so when Mr. Holtz wrote that tune as an ode to the planets, as an ode to something that God has created, it easily became a hymn which gives glory and honor to the name of, the Lord Jesus, of Lord, the, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because God created that beauty. And He gave man the capacity to express himself in that way. And now that's closely related to what I want to try to speak to you for a little while on this morning. We're going to go to Genesis, the second chapter, which is one of, probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture, if it's at all possible to have a favorite passage of Scripture. And of course, the book of Genesis, Genesis the name Genesis is derived from a Greek word meaning beginning. And it's also entitled as Genesis because in Hebrew... The word Genesis would be the first word on the manuscript on which the book of Genesis would have been recorded. That phrase, in the beginning, is contained within a single Hebrew word. And so when the various authors of the scriptures, inspired by God, had to create a name for this book, they chose the word Genesis. Meaning beginning, because that is the first word in Hebrew and one of the primary words in Greek um, in the original manuscript. And we read in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent was more subtle, subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, that is Eve, Hath God said, You shall not eat? of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil." And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And lest the command of God should be forgotten, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, here we are reading about the creation of God. As we mentioned before, we understand that God is the creator, the original creator of beauty and order and art in its highest form. It's not a product of of chance. It is the product of a creator who took nothing, a nothing that we cannot truly conceptualize, and made it into the earth that we observe today. It's been, it's been uh, the earth we observe today in that it was not affected by sin at that point. Now, if we're truly to grasp the Bible in its entirety, and we're to try to study it diligently, 
we have to grapple with the fact that God created out of nothing. We have to realize that He took this, this vast expanse of nothing that we cannot truly understand and made it into the world. The Bible has a plot. It is very sprawling. It's very broad. It reaches into all corners of history among a wide variety of people. And it draws from all of those circumstances. And it gives us a sequence of historical narratives that blasts us with this kind of spiritual potency and incredible power. And we read in the beginning, we read of this Genesis, this beginning, and we read of one of the most important facts of creation, one of the most important counts of creation. And it begins with the serpent. Now, of course, it is, it is widely accepted, traditionally accepted, and also provable by Scripture, that this serpent is Satan. It is the devil. We're told that in Revelation where Satan is called that old serpent, which is the devil. So we know that this, this serpent is Satan. That's confirmed to us by Scripture. But notice, we're not explicitly told that this is Satan in this account. And there's a reason for that. Now, Scripture is never purposefully ambiguous. What I mean by that is, Scripture does not leave out facts because it's inaccurate or because it contains errors. Many times it does that because there is a broader application than we would give to it if we received the exact details of any particular narrative. Let's think about another example. The Bible could be much more specific when it gives us the names of many and names and dates of many of the rulers throughout the Old Testament. But if it gave us the dates, we would most likely miss the primary purpose of that Scripture. Because the primary purpose of the Bible is not a document of science. It's not a document of history. It is a narrative which is centered around the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't contain any errors. It is flawless because it came from God. And to assert that His Word is flawed would be to say that the very character of God is flawed flawed in and of itself. But many times when we examine those accounts... We don't receive the exact details of everything related to that specific narrative. Because the primary purpose is to point us to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this account, we can understand that although the serpent is Satan, the being which can often come to us and tempt us in our moment of weakness is not always Satan himself. It can be our own lusts, it can be some of, maybe some of the individuals who are around us who may tempt us to participate in certain kinds of activities. It may be the, world, the evil which is contained within the world itself. It can be a wide variety of things. Because in the account of Adam and Eve, although Satan comes to them to tempt them, we receive a wider allegory, a wider depiction of how human beings are tempted over and over again. Children of God, specifically, are tempted over and over again. Meaning that we know the law of God. We know what He's told us. We know what He has to say about certain kinds of sin. 
But when we observe the forbidden fruit, and it's appealing, and we want it, and we see that it is good for food, we are tempted to compromise. Now remember, God doesn't have a hand in this. Because we're told in James 1 that God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth He any man. So on the basis of the authority of the Word of God, I can tell you, this was not God orchestrating the temptation of man. Because God doesn't tempt men with evil. He doesn't tempt human beings with evil. And so man is fa- man and the man and the woman that God created are faced with a decision because God has told them. He has established His moral authority. He says, don't eat of this fruit. Don't partake of this tree. Don't have anything to do with this. No, we don't necessarily know that this tree was inherently different than any other tree in the garden. Now, it's entitled by God as being the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but God doesn't necessarily make a distinction between, well, this is an apple tree and this is a pear tree and this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. No, He says it's a tree. But regardless of what kind of tree it is and regardless of what kind of fruit it was, God says, don't partake of that fruit. I don't want you to touch it. I don't want you to eat it. Do not partake of it. Because in the day that you eat of it, you're going to die. You shall surely die. And they know this to be true. And God has told them that this is true. But yet when Satan, these forces of evil that often work against us and come before us to tempt us and to bring things before our flesh that are appealing, they come before, they come before Adam and Eve, epitomized in the form of Satan, and they are tempted and they eat of that fruit. And there's a couple important principles that we need to take away from this account. Number one, as mentioned before, God, God establishes Himself as the ultimate moral authority. Man's moral authority is not his reason. It's not his intellect. It's certainly not his his carnal desires because those are simply misleading. We need God's truth in a chaotic world. We need God's truth as a structure by which we can govern our actions. Because I submit to you this morning, if you choose any other source of authority and you pick it out of the wide sources of information that we have available to us today through books, through the internet, our computers, our phones, the world wide web, that sort of thing, that structure of truth will ultimately fail. Because God is unchanging. We're told that He is unchanging. He is eternal. And in His eternal state of being and in His state of unchangeability, if you will, He is the only one who can make rules and can make laws that will serve us throughout our entire lives. And we've seen that. We've seen that throughout this last year and a, year and a half. And those of you who... I, I'm probably in a, I'm in a very transitionary period in my life. You know, I'm fixing to move back up to Birmingham for the next nine, ten months. And I have just been able to note in my life that things change very, very Rapidly, I felt like my life flashed before my eyes when I realized the first year of college is over. What have I done with my time? It's already over. 
I can look back and I'm a sophomore already. Wait, I was supposed to spend six years as a freshman. But, but it's, it's already over because the world is a world of transition. It's a world of change. And maybe a hundred years ago, people would have looked at science and they would have said, that is an infallible sense of authority. We can interpret the world through the lens of science. We can examine any issue on the authority of the scientific method. But what we come to find is as these various natural catastrophes crop up in the world, we don't necessarily have the tools to deal with them. And that is a very serious thing that we ought to consider. And what it means is that we no longer can make important decisions, important moral decisions, on the basis of science. We can't make important decisions on the basis of our own intellect a lot of the time. Because it's limited. It's fallible. It fades with time. But God has offered us with an alternative. Because in the midst of a world of chaos and change, He has provided us with a system that is constant and is unchanging. He has expressed that to us through His Word. So when you read about these various maybe social circumstances, these social conundrums that we're faced with today, you know, where people are debating whether or not alternative lifestyles are acceptable, or whether abortion is acceptable, or whether you know, maybe even a certain form of government is acceptable. We have a structure of truth that we are able to go back to. Because a God in the genesis of the world, remember in the beginning, not only did He create art and beauty, not only did He create an ordered universe which was good, He also established Himself as the moral authority. And it gives us an unchangeable source of truth to reference whenever we are faced with a decision. That again... Is not a decision which allows us to be still. It's not a system which allows us to rest in the calm certainty of what God has told us will come to pass. It is chaos. It is confusion. It is oftentimes depression. It's sickness. It's worry. It's concern. Because none of these things are certain. And I'll submit to you, if they've afflicted you like they've afflicted me, They have brought me down into some places of darkness that I don't want to go. Some places of uncertainty and confusion that I never want to experience again. Remember that word, be still. Because in Psalm 23, the Lord, He promises us, He says, I will lead you beside still waters. We want to be led by still waters this morning, not by the chaotic and turbulent waters of this world. We want to be where it is still, where we have a sense of certainty, of calm, and of peace. And the Lord, He has promised us that. The same power which saved you from your sins and transformed you from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, a kingdom of light, can lead you beside those still waters even in the midst of the most turbulent of circumstances. And those decisions sometimes aren't the most peaceful of decisions. 
Because they appeal those, those moments of controversy where we're offered the forbidden fruit of this world. To make a decision against that requires every ounce of will and spiritual discernment that you have within you. Because that fruit was good to Adam and Eve. It, it may have been just like the fruit of, of the other garden. Maybe this fruit that they had tried for their whole life. But God said, don't eat of it. That is, what dif- that is the primary aspect of that tree which set it apart from all the other trees of the garden. God said, don't eat of it. So when the Word of God says... That certain lifestyles are an abomination to him. When he says that he knew the infant from the womb, and he continues to quicken his children in the womb, that truth remains consistent regardless of what anybody else may say. If you are to grapple with the worldview contained within this book that we are reading this morning, we have to deal with that. If we're to accept it in its entirety, we must deal with the fact that regardless of what the world says, God is the ultimate authority. And He has given us a sequence of laws, a sequence of commandments, a group of truths, a structure of truth in the church that remains constant and that we are to adhere to regardless of the difficulty and regardless of the implications of the circumstances that we may find ourselves in. So when you are faced with the decision, when you are faced with any individual that may hold out to you the forbidden fruit of this world, go back to the Word of God and see where the Lord tells you not to partake of that fruit. If there is any truth... I assure you, I'll go ahead and tell you this today. I'm not ashamed to tell you this. That if there's any truth which will become relevant to me in the next ten months, as I pack up all my stuff and once again go out from under the supervision of my parents, who I greatly respect and love and I listen to, because I make an intentional choice to respect them, to love them, if there's any truth that will become relevant to me, it is this truth of, and this account of the forbidden fruit. Because there are many fruits that many influential, intelligent people will hold out to you in the palm of their hand. And they will ask you, take a bite of this. See how this tastes. Because I doubt, you know, maybe in your... Sheltered life is, you know, someone who has a set of loving parents and someone who, you know, maybe has gone to a primitive Baptist church, maybe been in any other church for the entirety of your life. You may be told that this fruit is unlike anything that you have ever tasted. It's original. It's fresh. It's new. It's something that you will enjoy. Remember that the Word of God says that that is the forbidden fruit that we are not to touch. 
And when you've conditioned yourself to tell yourself that in the midst of your temptation and of your trials, there is a greater blessing to be had in the kingdom of God and in his word than that fruit will ever give to any one of us. Because there is a life of fulfillment, a life of joy that is unmatched in the various temptations that you will often that you will often be faced with. There is a better fruit that can be partaken of in the garden of God's paradise that we are allowed to eat of and we can eat of with all of the blessings of God attached. Because on the one hand, while there's the forbidden fruit, there is the sanctified fruit of God, which you can put to your lips without a feeling of guilt, without a feeling of concern and worry because it was created by God. And the only thing that it will bring you is spiritual joy and happiness. 